Let's begin reading in Genesis chapter 7 this morning. We'll be reading Genesis chapters 7, 8, and 9. I know it's a lengthy amount of reading, but at least it's perfect, and we're not. In Genesis chapter 7 and verse 1. Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark. For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of the beasts that are not clean, by two, the male and his female. Of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah did according unto all that God, all that the Lord commanded him. And Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. And Noah went in and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean beasts and of beasts that are not cleaned, and of fowls and of everything that creepeth upon the earth. There went in two and two unto Noah into the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, the seventeenth day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. In the selfsame day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the wives of his sons with them into the ark. They and every beast after his kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind and every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort. And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in, male and female, of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. And the flood was forty days upon the earth, and the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lift above the earth. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beast and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in the dry land died. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed upon the earth in hundred and fifty days. Chapter 8, verse 1. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God was, and God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. 
And the waters returned from off the earth continually, and after the end of the hundred and fifty days, the waters were abated. And the ark rested in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. And it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent forth a raven, which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. Also he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot. And she returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her in unto him into the ark. And he stayed yet other seven days. And again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came in to him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. And he stayed yet other seven days and sent forth the dove, which returned not again unto him any more. And it came to pass in the six hundredth and first year and the first month and the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month on the seventh and twentieth day of the month was the earth dried. Verse 15. And God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And Noah went forth and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds, went forth out of the ark. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast, of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth on upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things, but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require at the hand of every beast, will I require it. And at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. For the image of God, for in the image of God made he man. 
And you, be ye fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. And with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark, to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud. And I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, Take, or this is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. Verse 18. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood three hundred and fifty years. And all of the days of Noah were nine hundred and fifty years. And he died. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this beautiful passage of your word. God, we thank you for so many of the truths that are communicated in here. Lord, this morning, we pray that you bring clarity. We pray that you bring conciseness. We pray that you bring understanding in this passage. And Lord, we pray that not only would you bring these elements into our lives, but Father, would you change us and transform us by these, that we may not only be hearers of this blessed word, but that we might also be doers of your precious word as well, O oh God. Lord, we pray you be with us in every avenue again, that you feed your lambs and feed your sheep, getting all the honor and glory to you. Pray that it be only your words this morning. We pray it all in thy son, Jesus Christ, holy and wonderful name. Amen and amen. Now, I submit to you that you may want to break this down in many, many more sections. You may want to go through chapter 7 and just cover chapter 7. And you may want to go through chapter 8 and just do chapter 8. But I see three primary movements this morning. We're looking at three primary movements in this text. And two of them are in chapter 9. So that tells you that the first movement that we see in the text 
is chapter 7 and chapter 8. Now there are different breakdowns that we can make in subsections and all such as that. But for the greater part this morning, we're just looking at chapter 7 and 8 together. And then in chapter 9, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 17. And then our third movement of the text that we're looking at this morning is in verses 18 through 29 of chapter 9. Now we look at all of that and we look at the flood and all of us grew up, or most of us grew up at least at some point going to Sunday school. And we learned the stories about the flood. And we know as from last week that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And we're not sure why. We just know that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I can speculate. We can make dozens, as many speculations as we want to. We can act like we know every little detail about every little thing. And just the truth of it is, I don't know. I don't know why no one found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We expounded upon that for however long last week. And it's still a point that's in my mind is, I don't know why Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I don't know why Noah is the one and his family are the ones that God has chosen to save. That he's going to wipe everybody off of the face of the earth, but Noah and his family. I don't understand why God did that. But I'm left with that same understanding. I'm left with that same question of, God, I don't know why you saved me. I don't know why I found grace in your eyes. I don't know why you drew me. I don't know why I came unto you. I don't know why all of these things. There are so many questions that I have that I don't understand. But all that I know is where I am today. I know that God did draw me through His Spirit. I know that I did come unto Him. I know that I did repent that night. And I know that I've had to live a life of repentance ever since. All I know is that judgment passed over my life when I came under the blood of Jesus Christ. I know that God brought me into the ark. I know that God is the one that sealed up the door. I know that God is the one that preserved. And I know that in chapter 7 of this, he's referred to as the Lord. He's still being referred to time and time again in chapter 7 as the Lord. But if you will move into chapter 8, you begin to see a notice of the change of the use of God's name. You see that he's just being referred to as God. Time and time again here in chapter 7 or chapter 8 and chapter 9, you see primarily he's being referred to as God, not as Lord. But if you've been with us for quite some time now, as we've been moving through the book of Genesis, you've noticed the primary name that the children of Israel have for God is the Lord. That the way that our Bible is translating it is the Lord. That's the personal name of God. Now my father is my is my earthly father that I'm talking about. He is my father, but very seldom do I call him, except for in an almost joking way do I say father. I will say that occasionally, but it's usually somewhat jokingly. Some people are very serious, and that's what you call your father. That's okay by me, but my affectionate name for my father, my earthly father, is daddy it's spelled d-e-d-d-y mother got my phone one time tried to change it to d-a-d-d-y and i said that's not that man's name it's daddy i know his name i got it spelled the way that it's meant to sound like it's a personal name to me i give that example just because i, I remember that so vividly and i laugh at that example but that's the closeness of my earthly father to me is he's daddy or he's dad or he's one of these nicknames that i give him but most affectionately most often he's daddy he's d-e-d-d-y that's Israel calling him Lord. That's when this book is being written to this first generation. That's a wilderness generation that's receiving this letter. This first audience of this book is, they know him as Lord. Not so much as God. They know that the Lord is God. But all of a sudden you have him being referred to as God. All of a sudden God is separating himself a little bit. Or maybe the author is the one doing the separation. Either way, what we're seeing in chapter 8 is, what was a closeness with humanity is now a little bit of a separation between humanity. He's being referred to as God. He's the one that's the creator. He's the one that's not the personal God of Israel anymore. These are words that you and I may glance over because we know the many names of God. 
But for the children of Israel hearing this letter, for the children of Israel reading this letter in the wilderness time, this is something they pick up on. Beloved, when God gets far from us, that's a problem. When we seek and understand, when we seem to understand that God is growing distant from us, something is wrong in our lives. And I don't know if anybody else has ever felt that in your life and in your walk. You're talking about people that are believers. You're talking about people that are walking with God. And yet, even still, they're facing some sense of, God, you're not near me. There's a whole lot of feelings that are associated with this. It's not all about feelings. You've got to know what you know. That's undoubtedly true. You've got to know what you know. But there's a whole lot of feelings in this. And sometimes we just don't feel as close to God as what we do in other times. And beloved, we're not the only ones. These children of Israel in the wilderness receiving this letter, they're hearing that after the judgment, surely we should be closer to God. And yet after the flood has come upon the earth, here we find that it is that they've been separated from God in some capacity. They're no longer referring to Him primarily as Lord, except when you see Noah. If you look in chapter 8, in chapter 8 of Genesis, and you look to begin in verse 20, there's a difference of His name again. Noah is referring to him as Lord. It says, And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast and every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done, while the earth remaineth. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. The immediate response that Noah has to his salvation is worship. Beloved, if we have ever truly been born again, that is the initial response that we have when God has brought us into salvation. There's been some sweet times of worship. But one of the sweetest times of worship that there ever was was on that Friday night of April in 2005 where I was the one that repented and trusted in Him, to where I knew what repentance was, to where I knew what salvation was. There was a knowing. Yes, it was a feeling. Yes, it was a peace. There was just an intense knowing that things were different in that day. And things have been different ever since. I'm not going to tell you I've lived perfectly. I can't tell you I've lived perfectly this week. No, I have to go to the Lord day in and day out. I have to be like Paul. I have to beat my body into submission. I have to die daily. I have to pick up my cross and follow Him. All of us have these things to do. But even still, beloved, whatever the condition is, the rightful response to God is worship. When God has brought us out, despite us not having any worth of it, we respond in worship unto God. What amazes me about Noah here is he's taken these and he's making burnt offerings. But if you're reading the storyline of the book of Genesis, nowhere have we been told to make him burnt offerings. Now the children of Israel, again, the first audience, the first people that are hearing this letter, they know that they're supposed to be offering burnt offerings. But I don't see anywhere where it indicates that Noah should be knowing. Noah just does. Beloved, there is something about us and that when we're born again, there is something about us that there is just a pureness of worship unto Him. That we don't know everything we're supposed to be doing, but somehow we manage to do it. I don't know what it is. God just manages to bless us. Though we don't know what we're doing half the time, God manages to bless us and to use us if it is in worship and in service to Him. Beloved, you may not know every answer in the Bible. You may not know every little thing about the Bible. I'm telling you, the further I go, the more that I study, the more questions I've got, the more that I realize I don't know. The more that I go along in this thing, I'm just realizing there's so much that I don't know. But beloved, I just want to worship Him more. I don't know why it is that when He has forgiven us, when He has given us forgiveness, there is a stronger sense of worship within our hearts. Beloved, I wonder if that is true within your life this morning. 
is that when you've actually sought forgiveness, and if you're not seeking forgiveness for Him regularly, I even mean this for the born-again believer, if you're not seeking forgiveness of your sins with Him regularly, something's off kilter in your life. If there is not a continual posture and a, a, a desire of repentance in your life, if there is not a continual leaning and clinging to God, something's off about your worship. He is the Lord that is meant to be close to you, and that is the Lord that no one knows and recognizes and makes burnt offerings unto. And I love what it says about the Lord God. Because, again, we know that the Lord is spirit. We know that God is spirit. He doesn't seem to have a heart in the way that you and I do, a muscle that beats within our body that's trying to make sure we keep living and keeps pumping blood. I don't see that God has a heart in that sense. But the only language that the author has to communicate what is going on with God when these burnt offerings are made to Him is, is that the Lord said in His heart, the Lord said in his heart that in his very essence, God, God says in his heart that he will not do these things again. God often does things outwardly, but sometimes God does things internally. Sometimes there is a position toward God. What once was a position that God was against the rest of the world, we now see that God is no longer as against the world. Judgment has passed. Beloved, for every sin that you've ever committed, I'm not sure my granddaddy, I'm not always sure about my granddaddy and his theology. But one thing that I always liked about my granddaddy always told me, he said, you can only take me back to the last time I got forgiveness from God. He said, that's as far back as the devil can take me as the last time I went back to him. Now, he had some other stuff that he added to it. And I'm like, granddaddy, I'm not so sure about that. But beloved, that's the last, that's the furthest Satan can ever take you back is that last time you got forgiveness from God. That's all that you can do. I love the passage of R.C. Sproul. He was communicating. He had somebody come to him. And he said, she said, I've prayed so many times, but I just don't feel forgiveness. I just, I don't, I just don't feel it. I, I don't feel it. I've prayed it again and again, and I felt it. And he said, if you're faithful, if you confess your sins, he's just and faithful to forgive you of your sins. And he says, you don't believe that. He said, you need to repent to God and believe in that. That has stuck with me is that we need to repent and trust that God has forgiven us. If God has forgiven you, then God has forgiven you. And the position that God has toward us is one that welcomes us into His presence, that we may worship Him. Worshiping Him is one of the best things that we ever have the opportunity to do is because we can rest in Him and we can trust in Him wholly. We can walk with Him in the capacity in which we were supposed to be walking with Him all along. The reason that God exercised judgment against the world is because of how wicked and how vile the world had become. He even says in verse 21, he says, For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. You mean to tell me as a nine-year-old boy that my heart was on evil continually? Yes. In some degree, in some fashion, my heart was on evil continually. But he said, Neither will I smite any more every living thing as I have done, while the earth remaineth seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. God is going to be faithful unto us. The, more, the song that we sang, if you called it, do you remember those lyrics from verse 2 of Great is Thy Faithfulness? That's almost the same lyrics that he had. And all week while we're trying to figure out songs, we're trying to figure out the passage and all like that, all that I know to understand is great is His faithfulness. We are not deserving of the mercies of God. We are not deserving that God should look down and save us. And yet He has. Yet He has brought us into fellowship with Him. But look what happens in verse 9. This is the beginning of the second movement of our text as we move into chapter 9, verse 1, rather. Excuse me. Chapter 9, verse 1 begins the second movement of our passage this morning. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. 
Well, that just sounds like exactly what he told Adam in the beginning. When he made Adam, when he formed Adam from the ground of the earth and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and made man a living soul, that sounds exactly what he's doing. In many ways, what we're to see and understand here in chapter 9 is this is new creation. This is God's new creation. But there's the problem that we've already heard. Is God has already saying man's heart, man's imagination, or yes, the, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. He's saying as that as something that is actively present. So we're living in this new thing that it seems to be an almost new creation, but it's a, it's a not yet. It's an almost new creation, but not everything's new just yet. And this is where it gets weird because he says in verse 2, he says, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. That's not what happened when God created Adam. We're seeing this account and we're made to understand that this is an almost new creation. But when Adam was created, when Adam was given dominion over all these things, nothing was said about fear. But all of a sudden now, in this capacity, we see that everybody's fearful of them. Everything's fearful of man. Now, I don't understand how that's true. Because I see a little mouse and I don't care how big I am. I see a little mouse and I'm the one that's scared. I'm the one that's nervous. How a mouse can just absolutely unearth my day. It can unearth my day. My brother and I, one day we were eating in a restaurant, a local restaurant, I'll keep the name out of it, but all of a sudden we heard a story about a rat was in the building. Sure enough, everybody was just, everybody was scared of that rat. Everybody was scared of that, of that mouse that was in there. And I don't know, it might have been a big rat, it might have been a little mouse, I don't remember seeing it. My brother may have, I don't know. But either way, we were eating in that restaurant that day and everybody was scared. And I said, well, this seems to be backwards. They're supposed to be scared of us, not us scared of them. But beloved, it's amazing, amazing how we even relate to creation that there is a fear there. There is a fear of something that animals oftentimes are truly afraid of us. Some of them we've befriended across time. Some of them are dogs and cats and all these other things, and we've made great friends of them. But you understand what a dog comes from was a wolf. And I don't want to get too friendly with a wolf. That you understand what a cat came from was an animal that can tear me in a lot of pieces. There's a lot of destruction that had come. There's a lot of fear between me and them. But I've always heard those animals are more afraid of you than what you are of them. I've always heard the best hunting advice that said, you can get all the camo, you can get all the different gear. The biggest thing you ever got to do is go sit still. I'm like, I don't do too good about that. If I want to see nature, sometimes I got to sit still. If I want to understand how God's world is working, sometimes I got to sit still. Sometimes I'm not going to understand it. I don't like deer hunting. It's too boring. It's too dull. I'm not going to do it. I don't know how my brother does it. I'll go and buck hunt with you. That's fun. That's eventful. That's, that's, that's happening right there. But I don't want to go deer hunting with you because that's too boring. That's too dull. But i tell you this, I love that deer hunters are out there that love just to reflect on the things of God when they're out there. I love that there are those that see the beauty and the creation of earth and that we're able to see, yes, He has created these things. And yes, these critters, these animals, they're afraid of us. Everything's been delivered into our hands. And it says in verse 3, Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. That differs from the early commandments of, from the earliest formation of man. He wasn't eating the animals. He was just eating of the rest of the garden. He wasn't eating of animals. That much is true. But over here on this side of the flood, things have changed. Beloved, this is weird, especially if you're hearing this as the children of Israel because you're expecting that the flood has brought an all-new creation and yet things are so vastly different on this side of the flood. It's almost new creation, but it's not new creation. It's creating all of these questions. It says, verse 5, and surely your blood, or in verse 4, it says, but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. 
Not to eat the things with blood. You're not eating the blood. It says, And surely your blood of your lives will I require at the hand of every beast, will I require it, and at the hand of man, the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And you, be ye fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply therein. God is telling them the value of life. Life is not something to be played with. Life is not something to be speculated on. It's amazing the early remarks when the, uh, when the Roe v. Wade decision was overturned. The earliest remarks I began to hear, I heard a lot of rejoicing. But then I began to immediately also hear the flip side of that coin of, there's a lot of new problems too with this. There's a lot of new problems that we've taken on. What are we going to do with these babies that are born? What are we going to do with the lives that are encountered? What about the life of the mother? How are we caring for the mother? How are we interacting with these things? Beloved, how do we as Christians, how do we look into these situations? I'm thankful every single day that that decision was overturned. But beloved, we have got to step up the game. We have got to step up and begin to care for them as they're walking through this. I praise God for the Pregnancy Resource Center in Carrollton and here in Harrelson County as well. I believe they have a place to be as well. But I praise God for these resources God has put in. God has given us the means of caring for life and we have a responsibility to care for life. Life is not something that we play around with. Life is something that we understand that they are created in the image of God. And if they are created in the image of God, they are worthy of our dignity. Of dignity, They are worthy of honor and respect in that capacity. What if I don't like them? It doesn't say anything about that. It doesn't matter if you don't like them. There's a lot of people I don't like. There's a lot of people I don't like that I don't necessarily want to help just because they, I don't like them. They don't like me. It's just a big old don't like fest. But beloved, that's not what matters. What matters is that they're created in the image of God and they're worthy of dignity, respect, and honor. How we approach sinfulness, how we approach other people is of critical importance. And if you don't believe me now in this section, we're not to our third and final movement yet. We're just halfway through our second movement. In verse 8 it says, And God spake unto Noah and to his sons, with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you and with every living creature that is with you of the fowl of the cattle and of every beast of the earth with you from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there be any more a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass that when I bring a cloud over the earth, and the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh, and the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, this is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. What I notice about Noah and his sons is they didn't have to do anything for this covenant. There's nothing that they really did on their side of the issue. God just said, this is my covenant between y'all. This is between me and y'all, but it's all on me. God said, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it. Do you see how often God is talking about, I'm going to put my bow in the cloud and when I look upon it, I will remember. God is ensuring that we see that his covenantal promise 
to not bring another flood upon the earth is on the basis of himself. It's not because we're worthy. It's not because we're good enough that he shouldn't bring a flood against us. No, we probably deserve that same judgment. There's no probably to it. We do deserve such judgment against us. And yet God has established a covenant that he will not do these things. Now the world has taken some covenantal signs and they make it look different, but okay. Don't get mad about it. Don't be upset about it. You might not want it on your car. You might not want to wear the t-shirts of your own. You might not want to do those things. You might not. You might want to understand that, hey, certain symbols the world has taken and the world understands it to mean something different. But beloved, when you see the next rainbow, if we ever get sunshine again out there, when you see the next rainbow that's out there, you can look up at it and you can know and you can understand that's God's reminder to himself. It really doesn't have much to do with you. It actually has to do between God and himself. It's God reminding himself about these things. You remember back in chapter 8 when we read it, when the flood had come and everything, and then it said, and God remembered Noah. What a wonderful blessing it was, and God remembered Noah. And I tell you, that's all throughout the Bible that God remembers things. I'm thankful that he doesn't remember our sin, but he remembers his covenantal promises. I don't read anywhere in there where he says, I'm going to remember your sin forever. No, as a matter of fact, I understand it to be that he remembers his covenants, not, a, not our sinfulness. Beloved, I'm preciously reminded of this truth when I know that I'm born again and yet still sinful. I know that he's not looking at me, but that he looks ultimately at the blood that's been applied to my life. He looks ultimately at his son, Jesus Christ, who has took me in and made me one of his own. And he says, Father, he's one of yours that you've given me and he is mine and I am yours and he is yours. Beloved, I understand that God looks at these covenantal promises and he remembers. Not that I keep the covenant. Not that you keep the covenant, but that God keeps the covenant. Finally, we have our third and final movement of the text in verses 18. Everything seems to be on the up and up. Yeah, I would love to leave chapter 9 and just say that was the end of Noah right there. I'd love to say Noah walked with God and was no more. I wish he was like his granddaddy and just walked with God and was no more. But Noah's story is not over. Things get complicated in our third movement of the text beginning in verse 18. It says, And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. Right there, if you're the children of Israel, that's ringing some bad bells in your head because you know that you're going into the Canaanites. You know that your people have problem with the Canaanites. You know something's not good about that. And you're like, wait a minute, that's our kinfolk. We know that we descended from Abraham. We know that we descended ultimately from Noah. We know that the Canaanites, hey, they're our kinfolk. Can y'all believe that they're reading this message and they know they're going to have problems with the kinfolk? Do any of you, you don't have to raise a hand, please don't, that'd be embarrassing. Do any of you know you're probably going to have some problems with some kinfolk coming up? Do some of you live in a day-by-day -day basis of where you just wonder when the next shoe's going to drop? Well, guess what? So did Israel. It's one of their own kinfolk that's causing them so much problem. There's a lot of red flags that are popping up. There's a lot of negative bells that are ringing when it says Ham is the father of Canaan. In verse 19, it says, These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Beloved, 
there's been a whole lot of ink spilt on this passage. There's been a whole lot of speculations about what happened. There's a whole lot of phrases in here that mean a whole lot of things. There's just a whole lot of things that I got a whole lot of questions about. But all that I know how to do is to look at this passage and say something good didn't happen. Something bad happened is all that I know. Something bad happened. And ultimately, if I can see nothing else in this text, and again, multitudes of speculation, many things that people speculate it was this, it was that, this was the problem, that was the problem. Ultimately, I don't live in their time. I don't know all their phrases. I don't know everything about this passage, but I do know this. I know that Shem and Japheth, that when they heard that their father was in there uncovered, when they heard of their father's condition, they took a garment, they walked in backwards, and then they covered him. Something bad happened with Ham and his father. All that I know of is Noah's situation was shameful. Noah, our great hero of the story, and if you were in Sunday schools like I was, Noah was kind of lifted up as the hero. I'm not sure we talked about Noah in chapter 9 that much. I think that kind of got neglected in the Sunday school stories. And I'm not so sure that's good because the problem with it is I had Noah as a hero. And my problem is I find that my hero is not that good. I find that the hero has done got drunk. Beloved, drunkenness still remains a sin. Drunkenness to this day still remains sinful. What Noah was done was a sinful condition that he was in. He was in a shameful condition. And Ham seems to have laughed about it in some capacity. Ham didn't do anything to cover his father's shameful condition. All Ham did was come to Shem and Japheth and said, Hey, y'all look at that. That's effectively what he said over here. But Shem and Japheth, they knew to go in, walk backward and cover their, father, their father's shamefulness. They knew what to do over here. Beloved, the way that sin is approached needs to be understood here. The way that you and I approach sin as a community needs to be understood here. Do we mitigate the sinfulness, the shamefulness of sin, or are we agitating the shamefulness of sin? Because i got to confess, sometimes people in openness and just in open sinfulness and everything, sometimes we may celebrate their sin. Sometimes we may openly mock and jest at their sin. Beloved, when it's a member of our community that has fallen into sin, as Noah had, as the hero of our story had in so many ways, if we have him as that, when Noah stumbled, what looked to be one of God's chosen heroes, when Noah stumbled, two of them came and covered the shamefulness. Two of them tried to mitigate the shamefulness as much as they could. They tried to cover it up. Beloved, if somebody in this community were to sin, you have a job and a responsibility not to aggravate their shameful condition, but to mitigate their shameful condition. So many times what we do when somebody in the church has fallen in some capacity, we try, we, we try to make a big deal out of it. And surely Israel, they know that they've got to send some people outside of the camp. But beloved, when you have to send somebody outside of the camp, it's not a fun thing. When you have to send somebody outside of the camp, I think about it that it was Moses' own sister that was struck with leprosy and ultimately had to go outside the camp. Ultimately what that meant was she had gone out there to die. But the community was able to welcome her back in and was able to love her. That's the goal of it, beloved. When somebody in the community has, shame, has sinned and there is a shameful condition about them, do not mock it. Do not jest at it. Do not approach it as Ham did, but instead approach it as Shem and Japheth did and seek to cover the shamefulness of it. Beloved, we're not out here trying to get anybody. I'm not out here trying to play Bible gotcha. I'm not out here trying to play sin gotcha. No, I understand you're a broken, sinful, broken, fallen human individual who even in this new creation, do you not see the scope of our life? How that we're renewed in Christ Jesus? How that we live in what we call the already not yet? 
that God has done us so many great things, but there's something that is yet to come. That you and I still find ourselves oftentimes, more often than any of us would like to admit, in shameful, broken conditions. Beloved, let us not mock and jest the shame of another. Instead, let us mitigate it as much as we can. If there you see a brother or a sister going astray, put your arm around them. Beloved, we're not meant to carry the shame. There's not supposed to be a multitude of shame about us. And when you've done wrong, you're going to feel that shame sometimes. But as that lady that came to R.C. Sproul did, don't be arrogant. Don't think that you know more than the Word of God says. When you come to Him, know that you are forgiven. But flee from your sin. Noah still died. Noah didn't walk with God and was no more. Noah still died. Beloved, we have a better hope than what Noah did. We have the hope of the Son, Jesus Christ Himself. That He gave His body for us. That we may eat, that we may live, that he gave his entire life. He lived his entire life as a model of the way that we should live. But ultimately, he had to give his life that you and I may have life everlasting. This morning, we come to this table with that absolutely in mind. This morning, we're not going to have a hymn of conclusion. We're going to have a moment of conclusion at the Lord's table this morning. What we're about to do is, I'm about to read the church covenant. I'm going to ask you where you stand in it. I'm going to ask you where you stand. If you're a member at a local congregation where this same gospel would have been preached in the same pulpit, if you're a faithful member there, you're, you're invited to the Lord's table if you've been born again. But I want you to listen. I want us all to listen to the church covenant. I want all the membership of Shed Road, I want all of us that are gathered here to listen to this church covenant before you come to the Lord's table. Beloved, I pray that you would not take of this vessel of this table unworthily. I pray that you would not do so because even in the book of Corinthians, we have that charge that we would not partake of the Lord's table unworthily. So for doing so, we take condemnation upon ourselves if we partake of this table unworthily. But this morning, I invite you to the basis. If you have been baptized, born again, regularly admitted to the church somewhere, beloved, you're invited to this table if you confess and repent of your sins. Again, there are requirements. This table is fenced. And let me read the fencing of this table this morning as before we partake this morning. This is the covenant. This is what we encourage one another to. Having, as we trust, been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give up ourselves to Him and having been baptized upon our profession of faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, we do now, relying on His gracious aid, solemnly and joyfully enter our covenant with each other. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We will endeavor to bring up at su such as may at any time be under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and by a pure and loving example to seek the salvation of our family and friends, we will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry of this church as we sustain its worship, 
ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, and the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. We will, when we move from this place, as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirits of this covenant and the principles of God's Word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. I would invite all who are willing to come to this table and who have confessed sin to God. I would invite you to the Lord's table this morning as we gather together. As you're coming up, would you go ahead and partake of both elements?